The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 32. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out for free, for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall oppose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go because of his eye. But if he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, then he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owners has been warned that he has not kept it in, and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he should be dealt with according to the same rule. 
If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new to Sacred City, we preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. We do that because we believe it's the best way to come to know and understand the revelation that God has given to us. Paul tells his protege Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you have probably heard a lot of sermons, right, on a select few verses, right? John 3.16, you probably got it memorized, you've probably heard a dozen or more sermons on that scripture, right? All preachers have their favorite scriptures, and they tend to spend a lot of time preaching them, right? If I'm short for time, I'm not going to go to this text to preach in a week, right? I'm going to come, I'm going to reach back in my back pocket and pull that one out on John 3.16, right? I can always deliver that one. And most preachers also tend to avoid the scriptures that are confusing or difficult to interpret. But Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us, even the parts of the Bible that are very hard to understand. And today, right, unabashedly, we are looking at a chapter of the Bible that at first glance seems to be totally offensive to our modern sensibilities. I have never heard a sermon on this chapter of the Bible, and I bet that you haven't either, right? I doubt, right? This was probably not the wedding text that you chose, right? I doubt it was the funeral text that you chose for grandma, right? It was, I doubt it was, right? You don't see guys doing sermon series around this, right? Exodus 21. Let's talk about oxes, right? But it's important for us. In fact, here's, here's one of the reasons why it's important for us. I have heard critics of Christianity appeal to this section of Scripture today and say that the Bible is immoral, it's outdated, because it clearly condones sla- slavery. Okay, I have hear, heard college professors, specifically undergraduate college professors, get up and pontificate about texts like this and dismiss the entire Bible because clearly, look at it right here, it condones slavery. This is ridiculous. Anybody who believes in the Bible is ridiculous. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Straightforward. Look at verse one right away. When you buy a Hebrew slave, there you go. The Bible condones slavery. How atrocious. We should ignore everything else that the Bible has to say because clearly it is an immoral, outdated book and we can't trust anything else it has to say. Now listen, I'm going to prove this to you, but to do that would be a grave mistake. First, it is to totally misinterpret the text in front of us. Okay, and I'll show that to you. And second it would be missing and just totally ignoring the world-shaping, counter-cultural, cutting-edge human rights movement that is actually being birthed right here in these next few chapters in the book of Exodus, really in the whole entirety of the book of Exodus. 
In fact, much of the civil rights movement in our country was birthed out of and strengthened by what we are going to read and what we have read throughout the study of Exodus. So we're labeling our study these next three weeks. We're doing kind of, it's kind of like the next three weeks over these next three chapters, protecting the powerless. Okay, that's what this, this, this text is about today, and that's what the next three weeks is going to be about, protecting the powerless. Now, for, to remind us, God has just rescued his people from generations of slavery in Egypt. He has set them free. He's given them the Ten Commandments, the ten pillars of a just society, the ten ways to live a good human life. And now, over these next few chapters... He's extrapolating for us and for the Israelites the implications of the Ten Commandments, okay? He's working out the implications of the Ten Commandments to create a society that protects the powerless and does not exploit them. Now, I want us to understand how cutting edge this is that we're reading here, okay? Up until this point in human history, There was only one real political idea that ruled the world. And it can be boiled down to this. Might makes right. Might makes right. Whoever had the power set the rules, right? Whoever whoever had the money or the power had the right to do whatever they wanted to do. And those without power or without resources were marginalized in society and were at the mercy of those with all the power, just like in Egypt. The Egyptians, because they were in power, they could do whatever they wanted, right? They could exploit the Hebrew people. They built the entire, the entire Egyptian empire on the backs of the Hebrew people, right? They were, the, the Hebrew people were powerless. They were slaves. They could do nothing to stop. the exploitation that was their lives. They were born into it. They lived their entire lives in it as slaves, and they would die as slaves if God didn't rescue them. But God changed all of that. When God rescued them, he literally changed their lives forever. He changed the destiny of their children and their grandchildren. But God knows, now here it is, that all too often, those who have been oppressed, when they get power, they become the oppressor. You see this in politics all, all the time, right? The minority, right? They just, they can't really do anything. They're out of control. They're angry. They're bitter. And then when the minority becomes the majority, they exploit the other side, right? You see this all the time. You see this in war-torn countries, Right? Still happening today. That one regime takes over a government and tries to kind of annihilate their enemies. Many times, you know, mass genocide of their enemies. And then 20 years later, 10 years later, that regime gets toppled by another military regime who does the same exact thing. And what do they believe? Might makes right. We're in control. We're in power. Everybody else needs to back up and be quiet. And really, their rights don't matter. But so here we see right away, point number one, before we even get to our text, I know I got to do a lot of work here. Point number one is that God is telling the Hebrew people, you are not going to be like Egypt. Things are going to be different here. Might makes right worked in Egypt. That won't work as my people. 
That won't work as my nation. You will not be an oppressive society. In fact, this is, listen, this is the first time in history where the powerless will begin to have a voice. There will be laws in a society that protect the weak, that protect those without power. Those on the margin, the vulnerable will be protected by the laws of the land that God is saying, my people will be different. God's people, God's society will be one where those in power will use their position and their capital to protect those, the powerless and not exploit them. But like, don't take my word for it. I'm going to prove it to you from the text this morning. Open up your Bibles, chapter 21, verse 1. <clears throat> Here we go. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. So before the Ten Commandments, that was the Ten Words. And now specifically, he's talking about rules, okay? Again, he's going to extrapolate some things, some implications from the Ten Commandments. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Okay, right. We already have some trouble, don't we? There it is right there. Now, listen, let me tell you this. This sermon is going to be a little bit different this morning. I'm going to go verse by verse. I'm going to have to explain a lot. I'm going to have to teach a lot because there's a lot that needs explaining, okay? So just bear with me. Okay, there it is right there, right? When, a, when you buy a Hebrew slave, there it is, right? Open and shut case, slavery is approved. Well, actually, not the slavery that you are thinking of. Look right there in the verse. First, it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave. What does that mean? That's someone of their own race, right? So already, the, the slavery we think of is race-based slavery, right? It's not that, because it's the same race. Second, in that, same, that very same verse, he says what? He says this, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free. So this is not a lifetime of slavery. This is some kind of contractual slavery. He's selling, he's buying someone for six years, and then in the seventh year, he goes out free, all right? So right away, we see that this is something different than the slavery that you're thinking of. We are reading this text with the 21st century eyes, and we can't do that. We need to get inside this and understand the context. The slavery that was practiced in this country involved stealing people of a different race from their homelands, bringing them here in chains, and selling them to an owner who possessed them for life. The slaves had no rights and were passed down from generation to generation. And in fact, look at verse 16 really quick. We're going to just skip ahead really quick. Verse 16 says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Verse 16 strictly forbids the practice of slavery that we as a country condoned. Right? And it says that anyone who did it, anyone who steals a person and tries to sell them should be killed. All kidnappers shall be killed. That's what he said. That's what it says. So when we hear the word slavery and we think of the practice that happened in our country, that's not what's going on in this text. This text was written 3,500 years ago. And when the Bible speaks of slavery, it's talking about something much different. Verse 1 shows us that. The slavery was a set period of time. In this text, six years and then freedom. 
But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let me start by explaining a few Hebrew words for us that's going to drastically impact the way that we understand and interpret this chapter. First, the word that is translated slave is the Hebrew word abed, abed, E-B-E-D. Now, why do we care about that? Because it is also translated worker, employee, and servant. We hear slave, we think one thing, right? The slavery that was practiced in this country. When this text was written, that word slave means employee, servant, worker. Now, what else? The Hebrew word for owner, Baal, also means boss, employer, master. And lastly here, the words for buy and sell, Kwana and Makar, refer to any monetary payment. All right? Now, you might push back on me here and say, Justin, this clearly condones the buying of a human person. We must condemn all such practices as inhumane. But again, I'd say that's a mistake. That's a mistake. That would be reading a 3,500-year-old document with our 21st century eyes and our 21st century vocabulary and missing the true meaning. Let me try to help us understand this by way of illustration. I am not much of a baseball fan. Uh, Last week, I sat down uh, Sunday afternoon to watch the Cubs game, and I was surprised to see Dexter Fowler in a Cardinals uniform. And I said, what the... And I texted my buddy Craig, and I said, Craig, 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 no, I didn't say that. Craig, I said, why, what is the reason Dexter Fowler is in a Cardinals uniform? And he texted me back a quick reply that said, I can give you 82 million reasons. (laughs) Dexter Fowler was bought by the Cardinals for $82 million under a five-year contract. And we all go, (gasps) But I doubt any of us went, that's slavery. <laughs> no, that's a contract. It's contractual language. But we use the language, do we not? Oh, he was bought. Oh, he was sold. Oh, it's a free agent now, right? This is the same thing we're talking about here. But we have to get in, inside this text and really understand it. So when somebody's arguing, saying the Bible condones slavery. No, 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 no. Not what you think of slavery. This is contractual labor agreements. That's what's going on right in here. What we're talking about in this text today is contract work, okay? We're talking about signing bonuses. We're talking about compensation plans. We're talking about workman's comp. We're talking about severance packages. And this is also um, similar to when a person signs up for the military, right? You sign up for the military. Many times you get a a signing bonus of some kind. You get a set salary over the four years. You're going to get paid this amount. And guess what? When When you're in the military, guess what they tell you? We own you. That's what they tell you. The United States government has bought your behind for the next four years. So you do what we say. Now, right? Now, are they officially, are they slaves of the U.S. government? They might feel like it sometimes, but no, they're not. It's a contract that they willingly signed up for for a set amount of time for benefits to themselves. It's the same thing we're talking about this morning. So this is not, and we're going to have to do this. Listen, every time you read the word slavery in the Bible, you're going to have to do this in your head because we automatically think of what happened in our country. So I want us to see here that this is genuinely 
cutting-edge stuff in the history of the world, 3,500 years ago. And God, right here, listen, this is not some weird product of evolution, right? All of a sudden, we popped out, and all of a sudden, we have ethics before we didn't have them. We didn't have morals. You could survival of the fittest was fine. You're weak. We kill you. That's, and we eat your dinner, right? That's fine. All of a sudden, one day, I evolved and said, you know what? I probably shouldn't kill the weak, right? It's not what happens. God steps into human history and says, human beings have rights. No matter the age, no matter the race, no matter the class, no matter how much money they have, human beings have rights. Not just the boss, not just rich people. Poor people have rights too. The marginalized, the powerless have rights too. Now listen, if you're here today and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, but you believe in human rights, you believe in the dignity of, of the human being and that we should fight for those without rights, guess what? You got that from us, okay? You didn't get that from any, you know, higher education, You got that from Christianity and Judaism. That's where it came from in the history of the world. It came from Christianity, all right? Now listen, why do I say that? Because there are a group of men mainly that are called the new atheists today, and they're they're all about kind of the secular worldview and kind of humanistic understanding and and what's and it's naturalism, what that means is there, nothing supernatural exists, um, and they can't really explain that or prove that. Uh, nothing supernatural exists. We're all there is. And they're kind of, pick, some of them are a little bit, they're a small minority, but they're kind of picking up steam. And most people don't understand the extremity of their views. And here's one of them, um, Richard Dawkins, one of the leading new atheists, Richard Dawkins, this is what he explains to us here okay, about morality. Okay, when we talk about morality, we talk about ethics. There is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. I hope he doesn't have kids, right? I hope that's not the message he's telling his kids when he grows up, right? There's no point to life. There's no meaning. We're just making cells here. That's all we're doing. But this is underneath all of that. And many of them, including Dawkins himself, will say ethics are something made up. We can't, we can't root it in anything. We can't ground it in anything. Ethics is something made up. And that's a dangerous idea. I hope you see that. That's a dangerous idea. It's actually a very beneficial idea if you're a warlord, right? You can dehumanize everyone. And might makes right. But in the history of the world, in our, especially with a worldview that we've been given from the Bible, it's a very dangerous idea. So as we get into this text today, I want you to see that all these rules are kind of working out a contractual work arrangement. And we're talking about employee, employer, contractor, homeowner, this type of thing. Okay? Now listen, as I jump in, one commentator said um, on these verses that the only people who enjoy this text or law, our lawyers, okay? And I would second, I would say, I don't know, I think if you're a tax accountant, you might like it too, okay? Because this is kind of like that, right? This is what's going on. Um, see, God's kind of working out these implications of the Ten Commandments, but you, if you know human beings at all, if you've ever had a kid, right? And you say this, you give one commandment, hey, don't jump on the couch. Boom, 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 whoo, boom, boom. I'm on the chair, Dad. I'm on the chair, right? It's like, Okay, okay, so don't jump on the chair as well. I need to say that, right? How do I, right? And this is kind of what's happening. This is why our tax 
You know, our IRS code is very thick document, right? Because, oh, well, I can't write off that, but can I write off that? Well, you can't write off that either, right? And so every year we're inventing new ways to cheat the system and the IRS has to keep up and the thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, okay? In a sense, that's what's going on this morning. What's happening is God is trying to set precedent, okay? He's trying to teach the judges of Israel how to judge cases that come before him. And so he's setting some legal precedent to help them judge difficult cases in the future. Okay, so this is going to get a little bit technical, but I will trudge on. Let's keep going here. Verse 3. If the slave, if this contract worker comes in single, he shall go out single. What does that mean? I'm a single man. I say, yes, I will sign up for this six-year contract. You pay me what you owe me. Maybe I get a signing bonus and then I work it off. Or maybe the payment's on the back end and you pay room and board. But if I come in single, when I leave, I go out single the way I came. But here, here's the deal. If I come in and maybe three years into my contract, a female worker comes in and my boss is paying her and hey, right? This looks good. I like this woman. Can we get married? We get married. She still has three. When I come to the end of my contract, she still has three years left under contract. So just because I'm free, I don't get to take her and our babies out. That would hurt my employer, right? That'd be basically stealing from my employer, breaking contract for my employer. So what God said, what God says is, if you get married while under contract, you have a couple options. You can either leave and go find a new job and your, fa- and your family can still stay there and work until you can buy them out. Or you can come back in and say, you know what? I really like this job. I'm, let's just do a lifetime contract here. We'll just stay under your roof. We'll stay on your property and we'll work for you for the rest of our life, right? This is like getting tenure, right? This is um, like some of you, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but you're at a lifetime position. You love working for John Deere. You plan work there all your life, right? It doesn't happen as much anymore, but it still does. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, four, if a master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and up, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. There it is. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children. I like this gig. This is a good job. I will not go out free. Then his master, now this, this part has changed a little bit. <laughs> then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and she'll be, he'll be a slave forever. Okay, right? Not only did we not have paper back then to sign contracts, right? We didn't have any place to legally file said document, right? We're working out in the fields. So what did, what did they do to sign the contract? They pierced their ear, okay? Now, I don't know what's weirder, the fact that we still do this, Right? That we, but we really, why do we do it now? I, I don't really know. When I was like 20 years old, I think this actually happened to me. Uh, I got my ears pierced with an awl at a tattoo studio. My kids still go, Dad, you have holes in your ears. Yeah, I know. I didn't know you were that kind of guy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but, right? So this was the way of signing a contract, right? This is the way of signing a contract. They pierced their ear, okay? Verse 7. Now this one gets... Let me see. So listen, here's the principle from verses three through six. The purpose of this law is to ensure that neither worker nor boss loses what is rightfully his at the time of termination of the contracted service. Okay? It's legal jargon, but that's what it is. It's human rights, right? That's what's going on. Okay, verse seven. This one's even tougher. 
when a man sells his daughter as a slave. What? What's going on? Okay. This is, have you ever heard the term bride price? Right? There's a bride price. This, what, and still in most of the world, what is practiced is arranged marriages, right? The, the family of the, the man, the family of the woman, they arrange the marriage and there is some exchange between the husband's family and between the family of the wife, the, the family of the woman, right? And what, what is, this is to signify, one, is the male is typically the earner back then. And so if you had a son and you gave him away, you could still expect for that son to give some money to you when you got older and support you as you got older. But if you had a daughter, you, you, you could not expect that. So what you basically are getting is you're getting, you're getting your retirement account up front, all right? So when you, you I hate the words, I, but when you sell your daughter, right? It's what he says. When you exchange money, when you're the, 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 uh, the suitor pays for your wife, gives this bride price to you. That is your future inheritance, basically. Okay, that is your future. And you basically sit on that as your nest egg for a while. And that's what, that's what they're talking about. But here's what could happen. Back then, sometimes men wanted more than one wife, right? Sometimes men would, per, would pay the bride price and then realize, man, I do not like this woman and want to just get rid of her, right? And just sell her off. Okay, or sometimes a, a father would do this to pay the bride price for his son. Okay, and so we see some things going on here to prepare for this situation. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Okay, so he's making provision for women. Now I want us to see this. This is not a misogynistic text. This is exactly the opposite. God is trying to protect women by some extra rules that he needed to apply to the first set of rules on buying and buying and working with contract employees. Okay. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So he can let dad buy her back. That's what that means. Okay. She doesn't just get sent out on her own. Dad can buy her back. The owner shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. So he's protecting her. She can't be just shipped off somewhere since he has broken faith with her. We see that this is a negative thing, that the, that the man who did this has done something ugly and done something shameful. He's broken faith with her. So God is not condoning the behavior of man. He's just working out rules because he knows that we're sinners and that we know, he knows this is going to happen. If he designates her for his son, okay, so there's the next option. He shall deal with her as, look, as a daughter. So he's saying, if you're, if you're um, buying this young woman, Treat her, and it's not for you, it's for your son. Don't treat her like a slave. She's not a slave. Treat her like a daughter, okay? Again, we're seeing kindness. We're seeing the introduction of new human rights and new values. If he takes another wife to himself, look, he shall not diminish her food. He shall not diminish her clothing or her marital rights. He's saying if, you, if these people have more than one wife, you can't cheat her out of her rights. You have to continue to provide for her, continue to make ways for her, okay? And if he does not do these three things first, she shall go out for nothing without payment or without money, okay? Whoever, now that, so what's the paradigm here? What's the paradigm? Any situation where a woman's rights might be endangered because she was a contract worker for a boss and no longer under her family's direct protection, that's what's going on here. He's saying, when a father gives his daughter to be married, 
right? He can no longer control things. He can no longer protect things. So God is issuing rights for her. Like she has rights under the law to be protected. Now this, it sounds weird to our modern sensibilities, right? Sounds weird to us. But in the day and age, I'm telling you, it was cutting edge stuff. All right, 12 through 14. Again, we're teaching, teaching, teaching. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Okay, he's talking about fights. Men who get in fights and kill someone shall be put to death. No murder. But we've already got that in the Ten Commandments, but there's, look at the addition. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which we may, may flee. What's he saying here? Now, this is interesting, kind of, if you're a nerd. Um, we just got in a fight. I wasn't planning to get in a fight. It wasn't premeditated. You said, something, you said something about my mama, and we got into it, right? And I killed you, and I was like, I thought he was going to get back up. Like, that was an accident. I, I didn't mean to. Now, listen, this is what God does. God sets sanctuary cities. He creates sanctuary cities where these people can, because right then, it, this guy's family that I just killed, they're coming after me. They want to kill me. They don't care about the excuses. All they see is a dead friend or a dead brother or a dead son. They're going to come kill me. God creates these sanctuary cities where the person who does this by accident can flee to. And while they're there, they cannot, uh, they, they cannot, uh, what's the word? Be prosecuted, right? They cannot be prosecuted while they're there awaiting all the facts to be found out. They can't be prosecuted there. So God sets these kind of safe places for them to go to. That's a place for which you may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him, look at this, from my altar that he may die. What's it saying? If you murder someone, we've already talked about murdering is different from killing. Go back and listen to that in the Ten Commandments. If you murder someone, you shall be killed. That's the penalty. Even if you're using God as an excuse. That's why it says, take him from my altar. You could throw yourself on the altar and say, God, please forgive me. I shouldn't have done it. Oh, and you can use religion as a kind of a barricade to keep the consequences of your sin from happening. And God says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. If you killed him, if you murdered him, I'm sorry, if you murdered him, you shall be killed. All right. So what's this saying? This is talking about homicide in general with an interest in protecting society from murderers while protecting those who are committed, who have actually committed accidental homicide. Now, you know, well, why would I care about that? Well, we have those same laws today, right? If you're under the influence of alcohol and you're driving your car at 90 miles an hour and you kill someone, you will probably be prosecuted for some kind of murder. But if you accidentally do that, you slip on the ice and you hit a pedestrian and something happens, you won't be. There's a difference. There's, there's accidental, there's, there's homicide, there's, there's lesser punishments, right? So we see these laws that we have today being the beginning stages worked out 3,500 years ago. Okay, verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. What are we doing? We're extrapolating honor your father and money. What, mother, what does it mean to strike? Every teenager is real nervous right now, All right? This word is also translated kill in Genesis 4, 15, but it literally means to beat down. It means it has the, ascent, the sense of assault and leave for dead. It's not like a single punch. It's not like a slap. It's not like a push. It's like I'm trying to kill my, fa my father or my mother. And that's a capital crime, setting the precedent for honor in the society. 
All right, let's keep moving. 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession, so we put to death. Kidnapping, right? Kidnapping is a capital crime. God regards taking someone away from home and family by force for relocation elsewhere as sufficiently horrendous that he requires kidnappers or slave traders to be put to death when apprehended, okay? All right, verse, let me see here. Verse, where am I at here? 17, verse 17 Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Uh Uh-oh. Now, let me say, this does not mean cuss at your parents. That would be a good way to ensure the death of about 95% of teenagers. What this referring to is a settled disposition to break the commandment to honor your parents. It's a settled disposition, okay, to never honor. It's also referring to adult children who decides to dismiss their parents and not support them. Okay, patriarchal society, right? And that there, there's some negative connotations to that, but there's also positive connotations that children, your parents raised you, they spent a lot of money to raise you, and as they age, you, re, you prepare for, for their uh, retirement, let's say, right? You're taking care of them on their deathbed, right? A lot of times they're living with you. That's the way it worked. And for a child to dismiss his parents and go, hey, sorry, I'm out of here, was really under the threat of death penalty. But it was really, this wasn't, this wasn't enforced very often because it was a natural inclination of a society to take care of your parents. Like people wanted to take care of them. They respected their parents. They weren't individualistic like we are today. Okay, verses 18. When men quarrel, here we go, fighting again, dudes. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die, do you see how this is just getting the implications worked out? Like, you know a guy like, well, I didn't kill him. Well, he's an invalid. What, what are you going to do? Well, there's no rules against making somebody an invalid. Right? Well, hold on. Yeah, we need some, we need some context here. Let's, let's work this out. And if, if the man rises again and walks outdoor with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss. Look at this pay for the loss of his time and shall shall have him thoroughly healed. So what happens? You get in a fight and you hurt someone so they miss work, okay? So they can't take care of their family and they have to pay medical bills. Guess what? You're on the hook for that. You're on the hook for that, right? So this this blows my mind when I get down into it, right? We're talking about workmen's compensation here, basically, right? Paying for their medical bills, paying for their lost time. It's the one thing you don't have is there's no paying for pain and suffering. Okay, I know we have that here today. I don't, we don't, right? Our litigious system is a little crazy. You slip on the ice. Daddy just made a million bucks, right? Not so, not so there. They pay for your time off work and they pay for your health care. And that's about it. Okay, now we get into something a little sketchy, as if the other stuff hasn't been. When a man strikes his employee, I'm just going to say it, or his slave, whatever. When a man strikes his employee, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Okay, what does that mean? That means, like, literally, if you kill your worker, you're going to die for it. You're going to be, that's murder. You're going to be tried and you're going to be convicted and that guy will be avenged and you'll be killed. Okay, you can't just dispose of your worker. You can't treat them like you treat an animal. There's human rights here. Now listen, 
I think this is specifically talking about fighting. I don't, some people think it, it's some kind of, it might be talking about corporal punishment. Like if you got a bad worker, you can actually kind of whoop him, right? I don't think that's what it's talking about. We've been talking about fighting already. I think it's going right back into it. I think it's talk, I think he's still talking um, about fighting. I know we have several people in here this morning uh, who work in the construction industry. And when I was in my 20s, I owned a construction company for about seven years or so. And here's one thing that you come to realize pretty quickly. When you're working outside in pretty much awful circumstances, some days it's like today, like there's like five of those in the Quad Cities, <laughs> right? But then it's 100 degrees and it's humid or it's negative 10 and you're freezing your fingers off, right? And when you're working in these type of environments and there's this pressure on you to get it done and get it done right, there's always a, there's always a schedule that you're always behind because of the weather. There's this pressure. Your boss is putting pressure on you. The foreman's putting pressure on you. People make mistakes and people get, and people, what naturally happens is people get in fights. I don't think I've ever been on a job site where I didn't see some subcontractor get in a fight, right? Now, I don't think... My employees might have gotten in a fight a couple times. I can't remember. But it was mostly the other guys. We're like looking over like, whoa. You know, it's kind of like a break. Let's watch the few wins. <laughs> right? And this right here is kind of what's going on, right? Like the Hebrew people were completely agrarian. They didn't have cubicles. They went and sat down and did work, right? They're working outside in the hot sun, no matter what their trade is. And it's difficult, right? And they're, and bosses, and they came out of this. Think about this. They're coming out of this Egyptian mindset, right? In Egypt, if you wanted more bricks, what did you do? You beat the, you beat the Hebrew people, right? You put impossible burdens on them. You restricted them and forced them to do it. That's their mentality. That's what they've been taught. And so there's this natural mentality of you want something done, be a jerk about it, be mean about it, break out the whip or the rod if you have to, and strike the back of this person and get him to, get him to go. Or just get in fisticuffs over it right? And so I think that's what's going on here. Now, if you lived in that society, imagine being a worker. You just got beat up by your boss, right? What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You get up in the morning and you go back to work because that's the only thing you do, can do. You're under contract with them. There's, it's not like there's Walmart down the street that you can go and apply for, right? There's limited jobs. So they, there was no HR department for these people to go and complain to until now. Until now. If you work in human resources, this is, the, this is the, the genesis of your trade, okay? This is the genesis of your industry right here in the book of Exodus, okay? And so let's read what's going on here. Verse, verse 20. I already read that. Verse 21. But this gets weird. But if the slave... So if you kill him, you got to pay... You, you, you're going to die... Verse 21, but if the slave or the employee survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Now this, this seems like if you beat a guy and he lives for two days and then dies, you're good, right? Can you imagine? Now I don't want to kill this guy, but I kind of want him to die. So I'm going to beat him just, hopefully he lasts for two days and then I'm free. Okay, now listen, that cannot be what's happening. That cannot be what the Bible's saying. Because look specifically at verse 21, or look specifically down at verse, where am I at? Keep going. Let's just keep reading. So let me just say this before I jump into that. Scholars say that this means that the employee loses a day or two from work, but survives. 
okay? He loses a day or two for work, but survives. He's saying the guy is paid a salary. If his boss is if his boss makes him lose a day or two from work, his boss is paying for it already, right? His boss is taking the loss. This guy's not producing anything. He's not a productive, he's not being productive for the boss's business. Now, verse 21 cannot mean an employee lives for two days and then dies. Okay, why? Look at verse 22. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Where do I want to jump to? Crap. Oh, way down here. Uh, Where is it at? I'm sorry, guys. I should have wrote it in here, but I didn't. We'll get to it. I promise you we'll get to it. When we're talking about knocking teeth out. You see it? Where's it at? 26. There we go. Thank you for the help. I needed it. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. Look. If you, beat your, if you beat your employee and you pop out his eye, he gets to go free. You destroy, you punch his eye, it ruins his eye, he goes blind in one eye, he gets to go free. It doesn't matter if you paid $10,000 up front for him, if you gave him a signing bonus, you hurt him permanently, he gets to go free. Now the next one even, even brings it down a little bit more. You knock out his tooth. If you're abusive to your worker and you knock out his tooth, he gets to go free. Now, understanding these two verses, we know that it cannot mean earlier, if you knock a guy, if you beat a guy, he lives for two days and then he dies, that, you know, no, no, no penalty, the slave is his money, right? It it's clearly doesn't do it. Now, I thought, I thought it was kind of a funny scenario. If I was a contract worker and I'd been paid up front, I'd be trying to get my tooth knocked out, right? Like, that's the easiest way out of this contract, right? But... Again, this is not thinking, this is, that's thinking in the slave mentality and not, and I'm signing up for this. This is what I want to do. This is how I make my money. Okay. All right. Verse 22. Oh my goodness. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. Working through this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, then one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. She'll pay as the judge. Two guys get, a lot of dudes are fighting. A lot of stuff going on. Guys are fighting. They bump into a pregnant woman. She gives birth. Who came up with this scenario? I don't know if this is happening a lot. Like, dudes, quit fighting. They're like, it's hot out here. We've been slaves our whole life. Shut up. Right? I'm like, okay. I get it. I get it. All right. Okay. That's what's going on here, right? Um, let's keep moving. Uh, oh, but look, if there is harm, okay? If there is harm, child in the womb is a child. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, this is called in the legal system, Italian law. We get it from the Latin lex talionis. The goal of the law, listen, and now listen, it is only literally applied, even in the history of, of, he, of the Hebrew uh, nation, it is only literally applied when it comes to the death penalty. That's it. No one, right, right before this, when we saw, or right after this, when we see a guy gets his tooth knocked out, the answer was not to knock his tooth out, right? Sorry, parents that teach your kids, right? If he knocks you out, you better knock him out. It's not... That's not the appropriate application of this rule, okay? What he's talking about is the punishment needs to match the crime. If you knock the guy's tooth out, 
then you should experience the pain of getting your tooth knocked out, whether that's a financial loss, whether that's time off work, whatever it is. Now, if you kill someone, then that is, because there's only one way to experience that type of pain, that type of loss, and that's the loss of your life, okay? So expressions like eye for an eye were understood idiomatically to mean a penalty that hurts the person who ruined someone else's eye as much as he would be hurt if his own eye were actually ruined, We see this in the next verses. Okay, now this is why kind of professional athletes want like signing bonuses, right? If if I have a bad boss or I have a bad experience there and I have to leave and vacate my contract early, I want money up front to make it okay for me to do that. That's the same thing we have here with uh, when a guy gets his tooth knocked out or eye knocked out, he's compensated as he leaves, all right? Last but not least, Verse 28, let's talk animals. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. Now, you're like, why do I care about this? Well, if you have a pit bull, you should care about it, okay? Secondly, if you have a pool, you should care about it. Third, if you probably drive a car, if you have a trampoline, you should care about it, okay? What's going on? Things that I'm not in control of causing the harm of other people. What am I liable for? Right? This is why we put, we, I think you have to put fences around pools. So a kid can't just see a pool and run, jump in, and, and drown. Right? You can be liable for that. So this is what's really going on here. He's talking about, I'm not going to get into all the details of this one. Um, I doubt, thank, everybody's like, thank God. Right? If, an ox, like, if your ox kills someone and he's, he's been a psycho ox his whole life, like, you're responsible for the psycho ox. Like, you should have known better right? And it's funny, you have to kill him, it says, but you can't eat him. Like, you know, I think that's kind of a double penalty, right? No steaks on the grill that night, right? And there's just all kind of thing. If a man opens a pit and a man digs something and somebody's animal falls in it, that guy who dug the pit and did it, put a fence around it, he's liable for it. Again, this is why we have OSHA, okay? This is why we have OSHA. OSHA makes us do things on the job site to protect the safety of other people. It's all started right here, Oh, man. So, let me just say, we are not, if you didn't know this, we are not the nation of Israel, okay? And so, one sense, all of these punishments, we can learn from, we can adopt some, but all of the punishments, they don't mean, I don't want to say they mean anything, but we're not under them in the United States of America, right? And we don't have to be voting, we don't have to be thinking that we have to be, you know, right? We don't have to kill, anybody who beats up his dad, like they should go to jail for that, but we don't have to kill that person, right? This is something that God was doing specifically 3,500 years in a specific nation state. But there are principles, and I know it took me a long time to get here, and I'm going to be closing here. There are principles here that we need to learn from and we need to adopt, okay? Namely, that God's people are set out and and they're, they're commanded to protect the powerless. We are to operate our businesses in a way that doesn't just ensure our success and benefit us and our family, but in a way that causes those under our leadership to flourish as well. Cause our city, our our workers and our um, the people that that shop with us, the people that use us, cause them to benefit 
as well. Our customers, that's the word I was looking for. Jeez, where'd that? That means we don't just pay employees the lowest possible wage they can live on. It also means that we have a responsibility to be working to make the Quad Cities a more just and equitable place to live, a more just and equitable place to work, place to raise kids. It's not right that the poorest in our city get the worst education. That's not okay. That's not right. We want to make our city a place where those without resources and those without power are not taken advantage of by those with resources and with power. I know, I don't know too much about it, but I read an article this week that our city is looking at um, the, just the, the whole uh, policy of, of bail. When you, if you go, go to jail and you have to pay bail. Obviously, if you're, if you're wealthy and you have money and you go to jail, bail's not a big deal. Yeah, I can get out of it. But bails, the whole bail system kind of punishes the poor. Because they go, and where they should just spend an hour or so in jail and pay bail and get out, they have to sit there all night, two nights, three nights, get, lose work, because they can't pay something that a rich person, doesn't, rich person can pay or, or a wealthy person can pay. Maybe this is an unjust system. Our city's checking it out and looking at it right now. Now listen, this is what's, as you study the Bible, historically, when God's people obeyed these laws, when they protected the powerless, God blessed them. Things went well for them. But when they ignored God and they ignored the cries of the poor and they began to operate again with the Egyptian mindset and begin to neglect the powerless and mistreat the poor and the marginalized, God would step in and God would discipline them. God would punish them. This is kind of what caused them to get brought off into Babylon and brought off into exile multiple times. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, you see God reminding his people. Sometimes he even says, you're fasting? I'm not even watching it. Like, you're praying? I'm not even listening because you're neglecting the cries of the poor. That's what that song we sang this morning made some of us a little uncomfortable. It was a song of confession that our, our, sometimes our worship gatherings have become a talent show. We've neglected the powerless and we, we've put weight on those with finances and those, more, those wealthy and those with power. We do these things. With the pe- human beings have done this throughout history. Now, what's the big deal? Think about the irony <laughs> right, of a sla- an ex-slave being a slave owner. Think about the irony. It happens. Think about an, ex, a, an ex-slave who was brutalized under slavery being a brutal slave master. And what God is trying to do is get inside of, not just set rules on the outside, but get inside their heart and change something inside of them. This is what he's saying to Egypt. If you ignore the poor, you forgot where you came from. You were a slave in Egypt. You were a slave in Egypt. How can you be a mean, oppressive employer? 
a mean, oppressive boss. You were a slave. Don't you remember that? You forgot what you came, where you came from. And secondly, if you ignore the poor, you forgot what God did to save you. While you were a slave in Egypt, you didn't earn your way out of that. You didn't succeed your way out of that. You didn't wake up every morning with your mantras inside your mind. You can do this. You can be better. You can overcome this poverty on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Get a good education and work yourself out of this. You didn't do that. You were a slave and God came and rescued you on Passover night. We remember that, right? The only reason you're here today is by the grace of God, he's saying to the the Egyptians. He's saying, let that work itself out in your daily life, in your employee-employer relationships. This humility of heart, this humility of mind. Now, when, it, when you think of, the, I'm closing right now. When you think of the poor and the powerless in our society, who do you think of? I, I think, naturally, I think of children first. I think of probably the poor second. I think of poor children first, Right? And one of the most shocking things for me about God and about Jesus is that he cares so much about the powerless. He cares so much about those on the edges of society that that probably the most vulnerable, literally it is, the most vulnerable human being on the planet, a poor child, God sent his son as one. Jesus didn't come as a king who could keep the atro- you know, atrocities of human life away from him with wealth and power and might makes right. Jesus put himself under that and came as an impoverished, as a child born to an impoverished family, a single mother, as it were. And then Jesus grows up and begins this ministry And he makes this statement to his disciples in Matthew 20, 25. He says, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, I'm just gonna say it like this. You know the world and its power structures. This is how they work. The Gentiles lord it over them. What does that mean? Might makes right. Those in power, I'm the boss, listen to me. They they rule from the top down, a top down structure. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is what he says. It shall not be so among you. The kingdom of God, the the way of of God's kingdom that's meant to come into this world, the way we're meant to operate is not a top-down structure. It's not like the way of the world, the Egyptian mindset where might makes right. Listen, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus flipped might makes right. Jesus says, you want to know who the greatest among you is? He said it too. Look at the children. He brought the children to himself. You want to know who the greatest among you? The servant. You want to know who the greatest among you is? The the powerless. 
This is, this is how you're to rule yourself. This is how to live on equal footing. All humans have equal dignity, value, and worth. Jesus is extrapolating the Ten Commandments. Jesus is extrapolating. He's putting, the, he's called the word that becomes flesh. He's the Ten Commandments. He's the law. He's protecting the powerless, made into a human being, showing us what it looks like. A bruised reed he never breaks, it says. He's kind, he's gentle, he's lowly. He hangs out with those who are lower class. That should challenge us as we try to the best of our abilities to move into you know, greater and greater income kind of locations and income, income near, uh, neighborhoods to kind of create a silo for ourselves around only, I want, to, I want to be around middle class people. I want to be around upper middle class people. I want to be around, you know, whatever it is. We're moving and we're trying to create these silos. Jesus was not like that. Jesus lived with the poor. Jesus elevated the powerless in his kingdom. He flipped might makes right upside down. And of course, what did, the human, what did humans do to him? They killed him. Jesus, poor, powerless, could have called on the power of God, didn't, gave that up. And we killed him and we crucified him naked on a cross. That's what we do to poor and powerless. Get him out of my sight, kill him. And Jesus does that for people like us. His Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so listen to us. Let me make, this is the last thing I'm going to say. If you ignore the poor, you forgot where you came from. You were powerless to save yourself. You were poor spiritually. You forgot where you came from. Secondly, if you ignore the poor, you forgot what Jesus has done to save you. You were poor and powerless, and Jesus gave his life to purchase you. Slave language, again, to purchase you with his precious blood. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would do the work in our minds and our hearts to see ourselves, to remember where we came from, to see ourselves as that poor, spiritually poor, spiritually powerless person who you willingly gave your life to save, to purchase, to redeem. And Father, that would cause us to rejoice and exult in the work that you've done, but it would also cause us and motivate us to move out into our city, into our spheres of influence to protect the powerless, to work for the betterment of our city, for your glory and our joy and just human flourishing in general. I pray as Christians come this morning to partake of the table, partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would remind us once again what you gave to purchase us. Your very own body, your very own blood. As Paul says, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the 
the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is my blood spilt for you. We are to eat it and drink it as often as we gather together. And so we do that in faith this morning. Your kingdom come, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.